so let's what we're going to do is the Garden of Adonis, and um, it's longish, but but as I say, really important. Uh, so we'll just go through it, and then we will really be done with book three and on to book four. Um, so where we got to was um, stanza thirty, and um, that I really do think amazing um, uh, stanza. Partly amazing because of the interaction of trial and need that he describes in his own relation to the Garden of Adonis. That he knows, well I wot by trial, that this same all other pleasant places doth excel, and call it is by her lost lover's name. Um, again, lost because he's been um, gored by the boar, but also that has to have something to do with his own sense of lost love. That is, the Garden of Adonis is a place um, called after the loss of love. And then he says in, in stanza 30, um, Long work it were here to account the endless progeny of all the weeds that bud and blossom there, but so much as the need must needs be counted here. And we talked about literary need. And again, I just, you should, you should think about that line till it haunts you. That's all I can tell you. That's, that's, in one way or another, that's what teachers are always telling you. But I'll just say it directly. Think about that line until it haunts you. If it doesn't haunt you, you haven't thought about it enough yet. So just keep thinking about it. Um, I also want to point out that there's something um, unexpected in the prosody of that stanza which is it is very, very rare for um, the first five lines of a Spencerian stanza, which, as we saw, form a kind of unit, rhymed A-B-A-B-B. -B -B. Um, there's almost always a pause, that is to say, a full stop at the end of the fifth line. Um, it's almost never the case that the fifth line <coughs> enjams into the sixth, as it does here. Um, there is the first seminary of all things that are born to live and die, and that would be a perfect place to put a period, things that are born to live and die, but it goes on according to their kinds. And um, in the second half of The Fairy Queen, in books four through six, you'll see more of that. Um, but stylistically, this is just worth noting, stylistically the first half of The Fairy Queen almost never does that. The second half of the Fairy Queen does it more. Um, and it's as though the form itself is the fertility of the garden is bursting through the strict form of the stanza. The stanza is still a strict form by way of rhyme scheme, but it's not quite um, breaking into the same building blocks that it almost always does, especially in the first half of the Fairy Queen. Um, according to their kinds is um, a biblical quotation. That is, that's what God, and it's almost as though another way of describing this is, is, is that Spencer is bringing that phrase out with its unexpected continuation of line five of the stanza. He's bringing that phrase out just to remind you of God creating all the fish of the sea and all the birds of the air and all the trees of the field according to their kinds. That's, do people recognize that phrase from Genesis? Um, that is that the Garden of Adonis is real. It's the Garden of Eden as well. It's the garden that the real God 
created. It's not only mythological. That's why he knows that it really exists. The Garden of Adonis is a huge source for Milton of the Garden of Eden. So, its sited was in fruitful soil of old and girt in with two walls on either side, the one of iron, the other of bright gold. So, um, it's like the Garden of Eden. It's a walled garden, um, one protected from the world, one that keeps the world out, um, and people can go in and out of the garden. Um, that none, the reason it has those two walls is that none might thorough break nor overstride. And double gates it had, which opened wide, by which both in and out men moten pass, the one fair and fresh, the other old and dried. Old genius, the porter of them was, old genius, the which a double nature has. Um, and that's an old image of the idea of not a genius, but of genius, um, sometimes a generic name for a kind of god, the genius loci, um, and sometimes actually um, a, um, a gate, uh, a, a porter or gate um, keeper. And so this genius is, um, I think that's an Ovid, right? The genius is a gatekeeper also, like this. No? Uh, yeah. 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 Um, so, I, so let me let me just uh, correct myself slightly about the about the stanza. Usually, you'll have a full stop either at the end of the fourth line or the fifth. That is a Spenserian stanza. It can be A B A B stop, or A B A B B stop. What you get in the previous stanza is not a stop after four or after five. Um, in this stanza, you do get a stop after four, and then five can just go through nine. Um, so genius lets, as he's about to say, beings in and out. He letteth in, he letteth out to wend, all that to come into the world desire. So here we have a crucial fact of life, which is that things desire to come into the world. And that goes all the way back to Plato, the Garden of Adonis is, is a version of something that Plato describes in The Republic. And um, the puzzle in Plato, and the puzzle that Spencer is alluding to, is that any being would want to come into this world. And Plato um, is interested in why any soul would want to be reincarnated. You see what life is like, and it's not good. And then you die, and you go back into the other world. And for, for Spencer, the other world is this amazing garden. And yet, souls wish to leave that garden and come into our world. And that, for Spencer, is a very basic fact of human life. And the word he uses is desire. It's somehow simply part of the desire of the living to live, not to have eternal rest or eternal joy or eternal beauty in the Garden of Adonis, but to leave the garden and to go into the world. And genius allows them to do this, allows that impulse to enter into the world 
allows souls to do that. Um, that's important because there's a way that Spencer is saying the world, as Frost will say, the world's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. That is, everything that's wrong about the world is nothing compared to the fact that it's the world. And all these souls want to be there. Souls want to be born. And they want to be born knowing what the world is like. That's the puzzle in Plato. Um, that you forget the truth at the moment of birth. That birth, as Wordsworth will put it, is the moment of sleep and forgetting. Wordsworth says, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. And he gets that from Plato. That's the platonic idea that at the moment of birth, you forget the knowledge that your soul has had in the world of forms. But before you're born, the puzzle in Plato, the puzzle in Spencer, is that you want to be born knowing what the world will be like. And yet you still want it because it's still worth it. Because life is great. No matter how crappy it is, it's great. That's what Spencer's image is stressing here. He letteth in, he letteth out to wind all that to come into the world desire. A thousand, thousand naked babes attend about him day and night, which do require that he with fleshly weeds would them attire. So a thousand, thousand souls, the naked babes are souls, and they beg him, they require as in they demand, not as in um, they can give him orders. Um, it's sort of like the Spanish uh, uh, version of require. Um, how do you, what is it, what do you want? Quieras? I thought you knew Spanish. Um, no, so what do you... French. <laughs> oh, so what do we think that? I don't know. Does anyone know Spanish? No. Yeah, so how do you say what do you want? Say, Yeah, so that's the word quire, quieres. Um, so uh, that's what they want, to be born into the world. They want to be given fleshly bodies, that he with fleshly weeds, the body there is, is being treated as clothing, um, that he with fleshly weeds with them attire, such as him list, those that he wishes to, such as eternal fate ordained hath, he clothes with sinful mire. So here are these souls, and they want to be born in sin, in mire. They're begging to be covered with sinful mire, that is, with flesh, with human flesh. Such as him, lest such as eternal fate ordained hath, he clothed with sinful mire, and sendeth forth to live in mortal state, till they again return back by the hinder gate. So, which gate is iron? There are two gates in two walls, remember, one um, at line, at 31, line 3, the one of iron, the other of bright gold. Those are the two walls. Um, and there are two gates in... There's a gate in each wall, which is the golden gate. The San Francisco one. <laughs> which is the iron gate. Think about what life is like. Which is the golden gate, which is the iron gate. You leave the garden when you're born through one of the gates... You spend a lot of time, then you, then you head back to the garden through the back door, which is the other gate. Yeah. The back door of the golden uh, exit towards the iron. 
Why? Um, presumably the iron for the hardship and uh, the, the sort of irony in the back door is that you know, he becomes much better towards the less desire. Okay. Um, the, I like you're saying the irony of the back door. Um, the, they all want to be born, though. Um, birth is the good thing, and then they come in through the back. I mean, it, it could be. I think he doesn't say, but I think the image is more that you think life is going to be good, so you're born in joy and die in sorrow. That's that's um, that's what things are. That's that's how things work when they work right for us. Born in joy, die in sorrow. So everyone goes out through the golden gate. It's a temptation, even the golden gate. Um, but I think what you're doing, which is very interesting, is you're allegorizing. Um, so the question is, if you read it allegorically, which is what you're doing, then the Iron Gate would be like the House of Pride. Um, it deceives people into thinking they should go out through that. Um, whereas the gate back to the garden and back to happiness is the Golden Gate, but people don't recognize it. So if you read it allegorically, iron would be an allegory for something bad, and gold would be an allegory for something good. And since birth should be bad because it's sinful mire, and since um, going back to the Garden of Adonis and leaving all that behind should be good, the gate of birth should be iron and the gate of death should be gold. I think that's your argument. Um, I think that the image is the opposite. Namely, that life is um, sunrise and beautiful and uh, the joy of a newborn day, to quote Wordsworth again. Wordsworth, who, by the way, in his early poems, wrote Spencerian stanzas. Um, and um, so the gold is a little bit um, uh, a, a sign of, of something desirable and valuable, but it all turns out that um, there's this other side you didn't even know about when you went out through the Golden Gate. And that's the iron gate of death, which is behind, which was obscure, which was hidden, and to which you return. Yeah. It's equally allegorical because you could imagine it as harking back to Ovid's Metamorphosis where he talks about the golden age and then you sink into the iron age. Iron age, age. yes, exactly. Um, Ovid begins the metamorphosis, well, you'll remember that. The, he begins the metamorphosis talking about the, the different ages. Um, However, it's not, it's not equally allegorical. It may be equally analogical. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's equally allegorical because if you say that you enter life through a golden gate, what you're actually saying is life is good, at least at the start. And um, that's preferring the image that is the beauty of life when you enter this world um, to the um, unfortunate fact that you're leaving it at the end. Allegorically, what, let's just say, um, a theologian would say is that birth is deceptive because it looks good, but it's actually bad. And allegorically, we would represent that as, let's say, an iron gate painted gold. Whereas death is deceptive because it looks bad, but it's actually good. And the way we could represent that allegor allegorically is a golden gate um, painted like iron, at least for those who haven't gone through it yet. But as soon as you go through it, you see that it's actually made of gold. Um, that would be an allegorical way of describing life. These souls, though, this is, this is um, the thing to, for me to stress here, the thing I want to stress. 
these souls know the truth in the Garden of Adonis, and that's not where they want to be. They want to be in our life of illusion, clothed with sinful mire, putting on fleshly weeds. Thousand, thousand of them are clustering around, waiting to go into this world. And I think what he's saying is this world is um, like the world of fairy. It's where you want to be. You don't want to be in the arid reaches of allegory and platonic truth, but you want to be in the only world that's worth living is the world of illusion, the world that we live in. Um, which And that fairyland, far from being an allegory, far from being a place of pure allegory where the delights are just there um, as bait to get you to think about truth, platonic truth, um, it's delight that matters and not truth. And where you find delight is in this world and not in the platonic realm of truth. Again, I think that if you see, what I'm urging is that you see Spencer as pushing really hard against the allegory and that it's, this is an allegory about how you should prefer the surface to the meaning. And the surface is the surface of fairyland, but it turns out it's also the surface of our own world. And the meaning, that's for dry theologians. That's for people who prefer abstraction to joy and to life and to beauty. And all these souls that want to come into this world, Spencer approves of that. That's what souls should want, to go into the world of love, rather than to stay in the world of platonic truth. Um, Plato explicitly says that love does not belong to the world of the ideal. Um, this is something that Dante disagrees with Plato about. But Plato explicitly says that love does not belong to the world of the ideal. Love is only something that uh, people living in our world of appearances can experience. We experience love, but the gods don't. Gods can't love, says Plato. Those who live in the realm of the ideal cannot love. <coughs> It's only in this world we can experience love. And that's what the Garden of Adonis is about. That's why it's Venus's garden. It's the garden of love. So here are these thousand, thousand naked babes who want to go into sinful mire and want to live in mortal state until they die, till they again return back by the hinder gate. After that, they again return at Ben. So after they've come back into the garden, they in that garden planted be again and grow afresh as they had never seen fleshly corruption nor mortal pain. So it is fleshly corruption and mortal pain. Some thousand years so doomed they there remain and then of him are clad with other hue or sent into the changeful world again till thither they return where first they grew. So like wheel around they run from old to new. So they want to go back to the world of fleshly corruption and mortal pain. And they're right to do so, Spencer is suggesting. And then in the garden itself, the garden is now going to morph a little bit into reality. Because the Garden of Adonis is how, he, how um, biology 
is fertile and reproduces itself. So you don't even need a gardener. Nay, needs their gardener to set or sow, to plant or prune, for of their own accord all things as they created were do grow. And yet remember well the mighty word which first was spoken by the Almighty Lord that bade them to increase and multiply. So what's he quoting there from Genesis? Sorry? Yeah, what's it in King James English? Not in King James. Be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. So they're all obeying. And God himself is saying reproduce. This is not, oh, original sin, that's bad. This is reproduction, that's great, which bade them to increase and multiply. Nay, do they need with water of the ford or of the clouds to moisten their roots dry, for in themselves eternal moisture they imply. Um, so they have eternal moisture within themselves in the Garden of Adonis. Um, it's all there. And then infinite, again, think of the production of allegory and the production of all the visions and sights and beauties of fairyland as we read the next stanza. Infinite shapes of creatures there are bred, and uncouth form which none yet ever knew, and every sort is in a sundry bed set by itself and ranked in comely through. Um, does anyone know what the following line is from? Um, all the flowers the gardener fancy could frame, which breeding once will never breed the same. Keats. So the idea is that the imagination will produce an infinite variety of flowers. Um, and having once imagined a flower, an imaginary flower, it'll never imagine it again. But it's the fertility of the imagination, the fertility of literally what imagination means, the production of images. That's the great thing, is not truth but image. Image versus truth is a very, very old debate. Plato didn't like the poets because they preferred images. A defense of poetry was, yeah, but our images are really allegorical and what they stand for is the truth. But that's not the defense Spencer is making. Essentially what he's doing and what Keats will do, Keats also wrote in Spencerian stanzas, um, essentially, Leave of St. Agnes, for example, essentially what um, Spencer and Keats are doing um, is saying, no, images, not truth. In the debate between images and truth, truth is nothing compared to the imagination, compared to beauty. Um, Keats very famously has the Grecian urn say, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. But for Keats, what's important there is the beauty part, not the truth part. Um, oh, for a life of sensations rather than of thoughts, he says. Um, I'm quoting Keats because Keats really is a vastly Spencerian poet and thought of himself as a vastly Spencerian poet. And for that reason, gives you very good insight into what Spencer was doing. What Keats thought Spencer was doing is probably likely to be what Spencer was doing. Um, 
So here we get these infinite shapes of creatures. There are bread and uncouth forms which none yet ever knew, and every sort is in a, is in a sundry bed, set by itself and ranked in comely rue. Some fit for reasonable souls to indue, so shapes of humans, some made for beasts, some made for birds to wear, and all the fruitful spawn of fishes hue in endless ranks along in ranged were that seemed the ocean could not contain them there. So the garden grows. Here you could even think a little bit of um, the matrix or something. The garden grows every shape of every organism on earth. Its shapes are grown in the garden. The souls are waiting to put those shapes on. Daily they grow and daily forth are sent into the world it to replenish more. Yet is the stock not lessened nor spent but still remains in everlasting store as it at first created was of yore. So the Garden of Adonis is full of these shapes, and no matter how many the porter genius sends out, the stock in the garden of shapes is still as rich and as full as ever. Why is that? The second half of the stanza tells you. For in the wide womb, of the world there lies in hateful darkness and in deep horror and huge eternal chaos which supplies the substances of nature's fruitful progenies. So the important thing here now to see is, is having talked about some platonic issues, Spencer is now shifting into the great Aristotelian question of the relation of form to matter. Those for Aristotle are the two essential things in the world, form and matter. Matter is what stuff is made of, and form, more or less, to put it more or less simply, matter is what stuff is made of, and form is what gives it its shape. And those are two different things that meet in any object of the world. But if you try to think of matter without form, which we can't, because if we just think of a clump of matter, we're still thinking of a clump, something that has the shape of a clump. Um, if we think of a sea of matter, we think of its surfaces and its shores. You can't simply think of matter. And you can't simply think of form. If you think of a square, you're thinking of what the square bounds, the inside of the square and the outside of the square. You all learned in geometry that a circle is not everything in the circle, but it's only the set of points around the center. The center is not part of a circle. It's only the points around it that are part of the circle. But still, you think of the region that the, that the form bounds. So it's a fact about humans. This is something that Descartes was very interested in a little bit after Spencer not much after Spencer, a couple of decades later. It's a fact about humans that you cannot think about form without thinking about matter, and you can't think of matter without thinking about form. But we can still know the difference between form and matter. We can differentiate them even though we need to think of both simultaneously. We can't think of form unless we're also thinking of matter. We can't think of matter unless we're also thinking of form. Descartes puts this, just so you know, as um, he says, I know what extended substance is. Everything is extended substance. 
Um, but I can't think about extension unless I think of substance being extended, and I can't think about substance unless I think of it as extended. So that question, can you think about substance or matter without thinking about form, people knock their heads against this. And Spencer's answer to that is, well, I can't really, but I know what it would be. It would be a huge, hateful chaos. It would be horrible to have just pure matter, pure chaotic matter, without any form at all. Um, and yet, that's what we're made of, is that chaotic matter. But that's the substance of nature's fruitful progenies, but it's not all that we are. Julian? Um, was uh, was P.S. Eliot thinking about this in The Hollow Man? In where? Uh, the Hollow Man. Um, shape without form, shape without form. Yes, body. yeah, yeah. Um, not thinking about Spencer, but thinking about Aristotle. Yeah, I mean, th this is not, this goes way back, but what Spencer's about to do with it is, um, the emphasis he's about to put on it is pretty um, powerful. So all things from thence, that is from chaos, do their first being fetch. This is how Milton is going to describe creation in Paradise Lost. So I'll just tell you this. Um, see, we're so far ahead of the game, we're already talking about Paradise Lost. Um, most <coughs> theologians assert that the story of God's creation in Genesis, the earth was without form and void, and God created, uh, sorry, um, uh, God created heaven and earth, the earth was without form and void, and then God starts creating things out of it. Most theologians think that God creates, um, it's called creation um, ob nihilo or ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. That one fine day, God created time, so that it now was that fine day, and then he created um, the world out of nothing. But Milton believes, as do many other um, minority and somewhat heretical theologians, that God created the world out of matter, that there was always matter, that God and matter have existed from eternity, and that one day God took that matter and created the world out of it. In fact, Milton is more radical still because he thinks God is made of matter. So God took some other matter and turned it into the world. That's closer to modern science. Um, not that close, but closer to modern science. That matter is eternal. And that in, um, in Genesis, what Milton and what Spencer are picking up on is tohu vabohu, um, which seems to be a Hebrew um, phrase for chaos, that is um, this and that, um, tohu vabohu, um, is just a mess of things. It's and also in metamorphosis that big yes. chaos that has all these weird forms but not yet fully formed. Right, exactly. Which is one reason that so many people try to Christianize the Christianize Ovid and Christianize mm -hmm. the metamorphosis. Yes. Yeah. Um, but with <coughs> with uh, with God coexisting with matter, um, as Milton and and the minority think we have the, the big theological problem of evil coexisting with God, right? That's where... Well, if, e if matter is evil, yeah, right. which it isn't in Milton, probably, um, but it may be in Spencer. Um, 
that would be the fleshly mire, except that there's an odd reversal now of what form and matter is. That's what's really, I think, fairly radical about Spencer, is just to keep going. Um, it's not that he's saying anything philosophically original here, it's the way he's putting it together that's, that's original and radical. Um, so all things from thence, from chaos, from this chaotic matter without form that we can't even think, all things from thence do their first being fetch and borrow matter whereof they are made, which, when as form and feature it does catch, becomes a body, and doth then invade the state of life out of the grisly shade. So there's matter which gets form and feature, form, and then becomes a body. And when it becomes a body, it then enters the state of life out of the grisly shade of chaos. That substance is eterne and bideth so. So this is unexpected because what we are taught from Plato onwards is that forms are eternal. Triangles are ideal forms. You can never destroy a triangle. You can destroy a triangular thing by ripping it up. But you can't destroy a triangle. A triangle is a pure form. And forms are eternal. That's what Plato says. That's where the idea of forms comes from in Plato. But Spencer is saying the opposite. Substance is what's eternal. We would say subatomic particles are eternal. Protons and electrons. Substance is eternal and bideth so, remains eternal. Nay, when the life decays and form does fade, doth it consume and into nothing go, but change it is and often alter to and fro. So forms decay. Substance is eternal, forms decay. The reason we're mortal is not that our substance, it's not that we're made of empirical trash that can't possibly last. It's that our forms can't last. This is, in some sense, obviously true, but from a theological perspective, somewhat shocking. It's the forms are ephemeral, and the only thing that lasts forever is pure <coughs> matter. Pure mud, Parmenides calls it. That's all that lasts forever. Remember the mutability cantos. He's already thinking about that issue here, as you're about to see. The substance is not changed nor altered, but the only form and outward fashion. That's all that's changed and altered is form and fashion. For every substance is conditioned to change her hue and sundry forms to dawn, meet for her temper and complexion. For forms are variable and decay by course of kind. So notice again, we have that same, a little bit later, but that same enjambment, according to their kind, by course of kind. Substances, for forms are variable and decay by course of kind and by occasion. And that fair flower of beauty fades away as doth the lily fresh before the sunny ray. So now the flower of beauty fades, not because the flower, the substance of the flower is destroyed, which is what you might have thought from the Bower of Bliss, but because the form, the ideal form of the flower can't 
last. Great enemy to it, that is to form, to the flower of beauty. Great enemy to it, and to all the rest that in the garden of Adonis springs is wicked time. So time is the great enemy in the fairy queen. Great enemy to it, and to all the rest that in the garden of Adonis springs, that is to all life, is wicked time, who with his scythe addressed does mow the flowering herbs and goodly things, and all their glory to the ground down flings, where they do wither and are foully marred. He flies about and with his flaggy wings beats down both leaves and buds without regard, nay ever pity may relent his malice hard. So now we have the real villain, is time. Why is time a villain? Because time destroys these ephemeral images, these ephemeral forms, and only, bring, only leaves what's eternal, namely hateful substance. This is the opposite of what you would expect in the Fairy Queen, if you think it's a moral allegory. That is, you would think what lasts and what time does not destroy, that's what's eternal and matters. But no, it's not what's eternal and matters, it's what's eternal and matter. So, the gods, however, often feel pity. Yet pity often did the gods relent to see so fair things marred and spoil it quite, and their great mother, the great mother of the gods, Venus, that is love, did lament the loss of her dear brood, her dear delight. Her heart was pierced with pity at the sight when walking through the garden. Them she spied. So who walks through the garden in Genesis? God, God. Yeah, when? After Adam and Eve have eaten the apple. Um, so now this is, just see how radical this is to replace God with Venus here. And what is getting Venus down, she doesn't, she doesn't punish the living with mortality. She's made sad by their mortality when she walks through the garden. When she spies them. Yet not she find redress for such despite. She couldn't do anything about it. For all that lives is subject to that law. All things decay in time and to their end draw. So again, that's what the mutability cantos is going to pick up. And what nature is going to say to mutability is thy decay thou seekst by thy desire. It's true that all things decay in time, but so too, Dame Nature says, will mutability. And then this great couple of stanzas, but were it not that time their troubler is all that in this delightful garden grows should happy be and have immortal bliss. For here all plenty and all pleasure flows and sweet love gentle fits amongst them throws without fell rancor or fond jealousy. Frankly, each paramour his leman knows, that is his lover, each bird his mate, nay any does envy their goodly merriment and gay felicity. 
Uh, do you remember the song in the Bower of Bliss that we looked at at some length? Uh, do you remember how jealousy appears there? You don't have to look back, but it's basically gather the rose of love um, while you can still do it and while you can have love without jealousy. So jealousy is about to rise up as the great enemy to love. Time is the greatest of all enemies. But jealousy in the story of Parador and Malbe- Paradel and Malbecco and Helenor, that's the story of the coming of jealousy. In the Garden of Adonis, you get love without jealousy. And that's really important. It suggests, as the story of Amoret and Britomart and Scudamore is also going to suggest, that jealousy is an enemy to love. And jealousy is clearly related in an unfortunate way to chastity. That is the demand for chastity in the person you love. The name for that is jealousy. The idea that I'm going to make sure you stay chaste when you're not with me. We call that jealousy. And so jealousy is related to chastity. Um, The idea of chastity is a jealous idea. That is the idea that um, not to be chaste is to do something wrong. It's only wrong in the eyes of jealousy, the person jealous for your chastity. But here in the Garden of Adonis, you have love without jealousy. It doesn't mean that what you have is polyamory. It's that love without jealousy um, no longer needs the external um, sense of obligation not to cheat. Love without jealousy just means no one wants to cheat. And that would be the good version of chastity the temperate version of chastity. Chastity not as an order or command that jealousy requires, but chastity as simply loving the person you love. That's who you love. That's who you you have sex with. So the Garden of Adonis at the very center, practically, of the Fairy Queen. It's the center of the book that's at the center of the whole book. The Garden of Adonis is about love without jealousy, about chaste love without jealousy, which is to say chastity meaning sex with one person, not no sex, but sex with one person, and sex with one person not because you're carefully avoiding having sex with others, but sex with one person because that's the person you love. That's the image of chastity here. But time, that is to say death, threatens all that. But if it weren't so, then there should be happiness here. That would be happiness. And then he goes on. This is what he loves about the garden. This is why he's experienced it for a while. He knows that the garden existed. He was there for a while. He doesn't know where it is anymore. Time has worked its its grim sorcery on him but he knows what it was like and what he says about it again in a beautiful beautiful stanza there is continual spring and harvest there continual so that repetition of the word continual is really amazing there's 
the need to repeat there. Continual spring and harvest because spring and harvest are different times of year. Um, you can't have both buds and leaves on a tree at the same time except when the leaves are just unfolding. But essentially, spring is spring and harvest is autumn. But in the Garden of Adonis, you get it all at once. That's part of the magicalness of that place. And he insists on it, continual. There's continual spring and harvest there, continual, both meeting at one time. For both the boughs do laughing blossoms bear, that's spring. And with fresh colors deck the wanton prime, that is the, the, the trees are flowering with their fresh colors, and eke at once the heavy trees they climb, which seem to labor under their fruit's load. So to put it actually more accurately, you can't have both fruit and flowers on a tree at the same time. Um, the flowers turn into the fruit eventually. But here in the Garden of Adonis, you have everything at once. The wilds, the birds, the joyous, the wilds, the joyous birds make their pastime amongst the shady leaves, their sweet abode, and their true loves, and again, no suspicion, no jealousy, without suspicion, tell abroad. Then you get the long description of all the flowers, etern and mutability, um, but what I just want to get to you is um, um, stanza 47. Um, so here we find out that Venus is still enjoying Adonis's company. Again, it's, it's like but unlike Acrasia in the Bower of Bliss. Um, and um, all right, stanza 46. There won't fare Venus often to enjoy her dear Adonis' joyous company and reap sweet pleasure of the wanton boy. There yet some say in secret he does lie, lapped in flowers and precious spicery. So he's asleep, um, suspended between life and death. That's the standard of Vidian myth. Um, by her hid from the world and from the skill of Stygian gods, that is the gods of the underworld, which do her love envy. So there's jealousy. But she hides him from the, um, from, the, from the underworld gods. But she herself, whenever that she will, possesseth him and of his sweetness takes her fill. So he's lying there wounded, but that wound is also um, the source of sweetness that she takes her fill of. That is sexual in the most obvious sense. And sooth, it seems, they say. It seems they're telling the truth, he says. For he may not forever die and ever buried be in baleful night where all things are forgot. All be he subject to mortality, yet is a turn in mutability. So Adonis is mutable and therefore subject to mortality, but eternal in the fact that he is always changing, always bleeding, always wounded, and his mutability is fertility. His mutability is the fertile source of the fertility of the world, and by succession made perpetual, all these things that grow out of him. Transform it off and change it diversely, and then the, these crucial, crucial two lines, which we'll end with, but think of Spencer and the Fairy Queen. For him, the father of all forms, they call, therefore needs, and there's that word need again, therefore needs mote he live that living gives to all. 
So what Spencer is saying, he must be alive since he's the source of life. Life must be eternal since it is mutable. That's what he wants to believe. And that's what the Garden of Adonis allows him, at least for a spell, to believe. That mutability equals eternity, since the eternity of mutability means that life goes on forever.